There's some serious cognitive dissonance happening in the world right now because we're told to look around and see that everything is merry and bright. We say things like, joy to the world, while there's a pandemic. While many of us sit at home and join us online as we fear what might be awaiting us outside. We fear the worst. And we do so for good reason. Because it's an interesting and odd and scary and fearful time in which we live. And Christmas, for some of us, brings things to the surface that are usually simmering. It reminds us of the loss that you've gone through from the, that spouse, that kid. The brokenness that we're going through in life begins to come to the surface. And we just saw Catherine share her experience of how it's been over the last six months stuck here. Now, for many of us, to be stuck in America is a pretty okay thing. For her, that's not where her heart's at. And the tremendous disappointment that she has had to navigate is difficult. I moved here in February from the Chicago area, and I'm beginning to wonder whether or not we're even going to have a white Christmas here in Scottsdale. Is that not a thing here? No? You have to drive up to the mountains for that? This isn't exactly the Christmassy, cheery sermon that we come to expect at times, but that's a good thing. Because what we're not going to do here is we're not going to gloss over the realities of life. Rather, we're going to lean into it and look and see what God might do even in those situations and circumstances. One of my favorite lines is this line from the opening of a Charlie Brown Christmas. It says, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. This is Charlie Brown speaking. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Have you ever felt like that? Where everybody around you seems to be having a good time. Everybody around you seems to be normal, and then there's you feeling like you're a fish out of water. You're not in the right place. My hope for us this morning, though, is that we can become people who wait faithfully because that's what God asks us to do in times of tension, in times of difficulty. To wait faithfully is what our parents tried to make us do when they would put the presents underneath the tree. Uh, my mom had to go through several different iterations of how to do this without Austin already opening up the presents, because that's exactly what I would do. Any other fellow cheaters here in the house? Yes, you'd sneak over, you'd open the presents. There were, some of you would sneak around the house and find them before they got wrapped, and then I'd tape them back up. I don't know how mom knew. But then, then uh, she had this whole system of coding things of, like, I won't even let them know which one is theirs. It's not going to be labeled right. And that worked really well for a couple years until that third year when she lost the coding secret system. And now it was just chaos. Whichever present you grab is yours. Uh, waiting is something that we're all used to doing in some way. 
But it's not something that's new to us. It's not new to you or me. It's not even new to humanity. It's been, it's been uh, something that's happened for a long time. It goes centuries, millennia before you and me to, in, into the year zero, if there is such a thing, where we find Jesus being born. And we find the Jewish people waiting and waiting and anticipating and hoping. And the hope that they had is that the Messiah was going to come. And they lived with this hope that the Messiah was actually going to come in their lifetime. And so they had everything ready all the time with this hope deep in their hearts. But the reality was that it's going to be centuries. It's going to be millennia of God's promise all the way up until its fulfillment. What we find is that the waiting that we have to go through teaches us something. When we learn how to wait faithfully, we learn what God might do even in that. What if there's a purpose behind the wait? And if you're like me, then you've probably asked questions when you're stuck waiting for things. You ask questions like, is this worth it? We all do that at some point. You have to decide, is standing in this long line worth it, right? And at church or in in your own spiritual life, you look and say, is the sacrifice I'm making because Jesus asks me to make this sacrifice, is this sacrifice worth it? Or do I need to bail on this? I'm not getting what I was promised. Why am I still in this? Why do I still go to church when it doesn't make me feel... Is this God thing true? Is God listening? Does God even care? And if that's you, then the good news is that the Christmas story is your story. This story is just for you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. And that's what we're going to do in this series, A Thrill of Hope is we're going to go through the Christmas story and we're going to have a conversation about some of the disappointments, some of the realities, the good things, the bad things, and we're going to talk about it all here. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 where the story begins. It says this in verse 5, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a pre- priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Here's what you need to know. There's a guy named Zechariah. There's his wife named Elizabeth. He is a priest. He's one of many priests. And then there's another guy named Herod. He's the so-called king of the Jews. Now, to be the king of the Jews was a little difficult. Really, it was a Roman-occupied territory, and Rome just didn't want any mess. They didn't want to have to fight people, have to have a mess, have to come in and clean up. They just wanted things to remain peaceful. And so they put somebody in power that can maintain the peace. Now, Herod isn't exactly a good guy. He's had two of his wives killed, uh, three of his sons. He's uh, went and killed a bunch of kids in Bethlehem. This is not the kind of guy that you would look to and say, this is the king, right? This is our king of the Jews. Nope, nope, nope. They did not accept him at all for uh, anybody who was legitimate. Didn't come from the line of David, which is part of the Messiah, part of what you have to be in order to be the king of the Jews. So they didn't accept him as a legitimate king, uh, but he's there nonetheless. Verse 6, both of them, that's Zechariah and Elizabeth, the, the couple, the priest and his wife, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. 
It's easy to skip this over, right? Yeah, I get it. Good, nice people. They're in the Bible. Yeah, whatever. But think about this. They've been obeying God's decrees, God's commands. They've been in obedience with the law their entire life. And what do they have to show for it? They have nothing but dis, uh, complete disappointment. 700 years of promise that fell flat. Here's what the next verse says. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. As a woman in this culture, your entire value comes from your ability to produce a child. And it did not matter if it was his fault. It, at the end of the day, was viewed as your problem. And so this is her shame that she has to live her entire life with this burden that she carries around her, like the scarlet letter. It is something that makes her different than everybody else. She knows it, and they know it. Something is off here. They prayed, they remained faithful, and what do you think you get when you pray and remain faithful? You often think you're going to get that which God has promised. But does she get what God has promised? No. And it's tremendously unfair. At least that's how I see this happening. I don't think that that makes sense in, in my mind. But the obedience and faithfulness that they go through is tremendous, yet they stay by God's side. They remained faithful. And it's all relying on this promise that happened back at the beginning of the entire Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, the promise that God makes to Abraham. Here's what it says. It says in uh, verse 2 of Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. This is God talking to Abraham. Israel, great nation, okay. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. You've probably heard of Father Abraham, the father of the big three monotheistic religions around today. That's a pretty big uh, legacy. That's a lot of notoriety. And I will make you a blessing. All right, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Which sounds nice, but when? When is it going to happen? Is it going to be Abraham's son, Isaac? Is he going to be the one? Well, he does some nice things, but he's not the one. How about when the people are in captivity, you have Moses. He's certainly going to save the uh, Hebrew people. He is a savior, but he's not the savior. They get kings. They have good ones, bad ones. One comes along, and it's King David. He's the best of the best. And you look at him, and you say, that is the, the template that we want for our Messiah. But he isn't the Messiah. In fact, what's promised is that the Messiah will come from the lineage of David. So he's important. It's all right there, but not so with him. Dozens of kings come and go. Some keep the rules, some break the rules. Some keep the covenant, some break the covenant. The, the nation gets divided into two, and eventually the whole thing breaks down 1,300 years after the promise to Abraham. And there's a prophet Isaiah that comes along and he says this in uh, chapter 41. He says, I will keep you. This is God reminding Israel. He says, I know, it's been a long time. But I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes, to open eyes that are blind. And if you were with us in our last service, that might sound familiar. I think it's both 
literal and metaphor. There's a lot happening here. To open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. God's still listening. God's still there. God's still paying attention. Although things are not going according to how everyone assumed they would go. Israel lost its influence in the world. It gets overrun by all of the empires, and it exchanges hands no fewer than 25 different times to Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Syrians, to all sorts of different groups. It changes hands, and ultimately, it goes into Roman control, which is where we're at in the story of, of Jesus' birth, and there's a guy named Ptolemy the Great. Ptolemy the Great is not considered great by the Jewish people. Uh, they, they consider him a pretty bad guy because he goes right into the temple, walks right in, into the Holy of Holies, because he says, hey, if this is the real deal, then let's see. Let's see what this is all about. So he walks right in, and nothing happens to him in 64 BC. He looks around and says, okay, well, this is all this is about, then. Jupiter must be a better god. So he walks out, and the Jewish people are embarrassed. They think it can't get much worse than this. Zechariah is an old man, but he would have been a little boy when that happened. He was there. His dad was probably a priest. He heard the stories of what happened in the temple with Ptolemy. He knew all the story of Israel from thousands of years before. He's seen it happen. It's the kind of thing that if you're looking and if you're watching, you're going to say to him, hey, listen, Zechariah, stop. Just, just quit. This is not worth the fight. You keep trying so hard. You think God is listening, but I got news for you. It's just not going to happen in your lifetime. But it's precisely then, in the fullness of God's time, that things begin to move. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. There's 24 orders of priests. They all cast lots on who's going to do what role, and he draws it that on this special day, he gets a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be the person that goes into the holy place, into the temple. Verse 10, this is a huge deal for him. Big, big deal. And when that time for burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then, with Zechariah inside, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now pause right there. I know, when you read the Bible, weird things happen, like God comes from the other side of the mountain, and angels show up. I just want to, like here in this room, acknowledge the fact that in normal, mundane life, angels just appearing is not a normal thing, right? Let's acknowledge that. And so for this, in Zechariah's life, this is a very remarkable time as well. This is not something that happens often. It's never happened to him before, I'm guessing, and this is... Uh, pretty special. So an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. I don't know about you, but if an angel just pop, you know, if I look over my shoulder and he's standing right there, it's going to freak me out a little bit. I'm going to have to go change my pants afterwards. Zechariah in there 
sees him, and is immediately told, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. You'll become known as John the Baptist. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And check out what the angel promises Zechariah. Here's what he says the son will do. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. You don't have to go back to something that you didn't leave. But a lot of people gave up. A lot of people quit. A lot of people left. What the angel says is that John is going to be responsible for them finding that hope again. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in spirit and power, in the spirit and power of Elijah, who's an important prophet of the Old Testament, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is uh, uh, well along in her years. Guys, take note. Your wife is not old. She is well along in her years. He's a very diplomatic man. He's paying attention here. Even to the angel, she's not in the room, but she knows. She knows. The angel says to him in verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. They will come true at their appointed time. What if... I'm just going to put this out there. What if for you, I'm not going to try to, try to answer this. I'm not going to give you answers. I'm just going to ask this. What if for you there is such a thing as an appointed time? What if for you there is such a thing as a journey that you must go on? What if there is something that you must do or a, a, a period of time that you must wait or an experience you must go through in order to receive that thing that you have waited for and prayed for for a long, long time? What if? If that is the case, if that is the case, then your suffering is not in vain. If that is the case, then the pain that you're enduring today, the things that you're walking through, the uncertainty, the discomfort, and the frustration that you're going through is not worthless. It serves a purpose. So what if? What if there is something beyond this? What if there is something more to this? Let's keep going. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he was staying so long in the temple. Old man, did he get lost? Can he not find his way out? I don't know. But when he came out, verse 22, he could not speak to them. 
They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. As powerful as this moment is, it is only the beginning. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Zechariah and Elizabeth's dilemma is your dilemma. It is my dilemma. It is our struggle. Do you wait or do you go? Do you run? Do you give up? Do you say, it's, it's all game over, I need to be finished with this? Or do you say, I'm doubling down, I'm sticking this one out? What I hope that we can see is that when we're faced with that pain, when we're faced with that struggle, when 2020 does not work out the way that any one of us ever thought it was going to work out, we can pause and we can wait faithful and we can just simply ask those simple questions. What if God wants to use this? And what if, even though I don't understand what's happening today, what if... I can understand this into the future. What if God wants to use this later? We need to be people who wait faithfully. There's a few things we can do to wait faithfully. Despite our pain, there are a few things we can do despite our disappointment, despite our frustration. Given all of that, the reality of everything that we're going through, here's a, a few uh, tips and then I'll uh, let us go here. Three things. The first thing you can do is take time to lament. Take time to lament. This is not something we do well. Our society is really bad at this. When there's a pain, we just want to jump right away to the solution. We want to pill for that. We want a screen to be able to entertain us through that. We want a new relationship. We don't want to have to deal with the brokenness. We don't want to have to deal with the reality of what's happening around us. But that's just not healthy, is it? We know that covering things up only works to a certain extent. Eventually, that begins chipping off and the reality of what's underneath begins to show, doesn't it? But when you take time to lament, you allow the badness, you allow the frustration and the disappointment to come up and just to be there and you get to look at it right in the eyes and deal with it. And when you do that, something powerful happens that you cannot have happen when you just bury it, when you throw it away. You acknowledge it and you say, God, I'm trusting that you're going to use this. When you do this, you, you see a health kind of come about you, an acceptance of the reality around you, but, but also the importance of what God can do even with less than great uh, situations and circumstances. A couple of weeks ago, we had a prayer night right out here in our prayer garden. 
And uh, Pastor Sarah led us in a prayer of lament. Man, that is a powerful moment for you, for me, for each of us to take time to lament. Don't rush to the end. Allow the disappointment and the frustration to sit there. So start there, but don't end there. Second thing I want to encourage you to do, take time for disciplined reflection. Create rhythms in your life. We all have rhythms, we all have routines, but create a consistent rhythm in your life where you can take an assessment. Because I guarantee you this, you will find yourself at some point thinking that everything's fine, but the moment that you shut it all off and you sit quietly and you are left with nobody but yourself and God, things will start rising to the surface you did not know were there. But you're not going to see that, you're not going to experience that unless you take time for disciplined reflection. Lament is a part of that. Celebration is a part of that. Healing is a part of that. Take time for disciplined reflection. It'll help you get through these difficult situations and seasons. The final takeaway, take time to give thanks. Take time to give thanks. We just got through Thanksgiving, so if you're like me, you're like, check, gave thanks. It's like when I got married, told my wife I loved her on the wedding day. Why do I have to say it again? Come on. I said thank you on Thanksgiving. God, I'm grateful. You see how grateful I am? All right, let's get this done. We know that's not how it works, right? That's not how gratefulness works. That's not how gratitude functions. We need to be people who are filled with this. This is the way that we operate. We always function, and not just in this nice, happy season where we all put on smiles and pretend that everything is merry and bright, but in the darkness when we're stuck in life, when you feel like you can't get where you need to go, Take time to even give thanks then. And when you build rhythms of this, of healthy reflection, of lament, of celebration, when you build this into your life, I guarantee you this, you'll find yourself happier. Not that that's the end goal. I'm just telling you that's one of the consequences that comes from this. You will find yourself in a better place spiritually, emotionally, because this is how God created us to be. People who do not ignore the realities of what's happening in the world, but rather people who absorb it and can sit with that and accept it and allow God to use that to move us forward. As we close this morning, we we saw that video of Catherine at the beginning. We recorded that a few weeks ago. Uh, Yesterday, she sent us an update, so check it out. From Jordan, I arrived here last night, and I'm so thankful for all of you who've been praying for me and encouraging me through this uh, last seven months. And um, you can hear the prayer call in the background. Just a good reminder that we have a hope that's worth sharing. And I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. I love you guys, bye. Catherine is in Jordan as we speak. She had been uh, stuck in the States for however many, seven, eight months here, and now she is back. She just sent that yesterday, and the funny thing is it has the location attached to it, and so I saw that video on my phone, and I thought, Jordan, wow, now when you look at the map of like where pictures were taken, I have a video from Jordan of all places, which is kind of neat. But we celebrate that. 
because that's who God is. Will you get everything you've ever hoped and dreamed for? Well, if you're in alignment with God, yes, you will. He will give you the desires of your heart. But you also have to keep in mind, our God is a God of disruption. Our God is a God who is okay with waiting. He's okay with pain. He's okay with frustration. And he's okay with you bringing that to him. So what if, what if in your life there's a purpose behind the wait? Let's pray.